Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning, and welcome to Military Network Radio. We are very glad that you have joined us today. I'm joined today by Justin Constantine, and we are here to bring you a show on a a prevalent problem in the community, not just the military community, but throughout the world, frankly. And we're going to be talking about the challenges of positive mental health, suicide prevention, and the reality of past history of issues and unresolved things in families and how suicide prevention is more than a veteran problem. It's a military family concern. Justin, would you like to add to that? And welcome to the show this morning. Oh, sure. Well, thank you, Linda. As always, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, obviously, it's a very sobering it topic. It is. But, but very important. And we have to be able to talk about these openly. I think that's part of the, the challenge, part of the problem is that people don't aren't comfortable talking about topics like this. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a matter of life and death, literally. And so I'm glad we're having this show and with a fantastic guest to really help our listeners understand what resources are out there, but really what are the underlying concerns and how suicide affects military families. It, it, well put. And I think that's the key that we're going to focus in on today. What are the challenges? How can families help? How much education is needed? I think there's a lot of awareness But I think that we face some hurdles with stigma still. And as Justin said, we're talking about a lot of people do not feel comfortable talking with. So we'll introduce our guest today. We're talking to Susie Reese. And Susie, welcome to Military Network Radio. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm having trouble hearing you. So if you don't mind speaking up just a little, it would help. Okay. Better. Perfect. Okay, let's start with your backstory and your dad and your family and, and, and just sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today with mental health issues and unresolved things going on that may cause later issues. Sure. Um, so my father was a first sergeant in the 3rd U.S. Infantry. Um, he was in charge of the ceremonial unit for the president. Um, at the time, it was President Bill Clinton. And I was around 10. I had actually just had my 10th birthday. And he'd been in the military for um, more than 20 years. And uh, my stepmother asked him to begin retirement so that they could phase into a different part of life. And during that time uh, of beginning that retirement process, she also requested a divorce. And um, so there was a lot of upheaval going on. And um, I remember distinctly my father sitting down with me to tell me about how different life would be. And, you know, our, my, your stepmother is not going to be around. We're not going to be in Washington, D.C. And um, I admitted to him that she had been physically abusive toward me for the, the entire duration of their, their relationship. And um, shortly thereafter, he had access to some weapons and he took her life and then his own. Um, it was 
to say it was um, difficult is a complete understatement. Mm -hmm. It absolutely changed the course of my life. And unfortunately, it really derailed who he had been um, up until that point. Um, A lot of people forgot what an amazing person he was and how dedicated he was to not only his, his friends and country, but also to just, you know, helping others. Um, so it, it definitely changed, um, my outlook on what mental health was. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I definitely, I think what you said, education is, is most definitely important. That was a very quick. (laughs) Yes, but that's a very tough story. Thank you for really sharing that because I think again talking about these things puts a a window of perspective on it the other thing that you mentioned that is very key at least it clued in and resonated with me was the portion about this was a very sudden act and it changed who you knew him to be and I, I know you don't have a crystal ball but would you say that the abuse that you took and that he learned about possibly triggered a very situational moment? I think so. Um, he had been the protector and, and he had been trained to be a protector and to, to protect complete strangers. And then to find out, I, I can't imagine how demasculating de- that would be to find out that you didn't protect your own child. So in my mind, it was it was a culmination of many things, but I think that that definitely played a major part in in who he was, and it may have even and again you said I don't have a crystal ball, I don't know, but it may have made him feel like he hadn't been that person that he really thought he was for so long. Susie, uh, good morning, and thank you for being here. Can you talk at all about what happened after that? I, thank you. I'm, yes, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, when that happened, this was more than 20 years ago. Um, I distinctly remember the, the morning that I found out. Um, it was, it had just so happened that that evening was the first night I got to spend the night with a friend. And so I was so excited about that evening and having that opportunity. And that next morning I woke up and we lived on Fort Myers at the time. I woke up and I I ran down the road to see if my dad had come back and I didn't see his truck. And I turned around and I saw, um, military police standing there. And at the time I didn't know who they were. I just saw these huge tall men and it was, I was terrified. I was like, what have I done? I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, And it was just, you know, I was, I was 10 and they were like eight foot tall in my head. (laughs) They took me in the parlor of one of the um, townhouses on Fort Myers and very point blank said, this is what happened. This is who, who was there. This is where it happened. Um, Your father is dead. I don't remember a majority of that conversation. I blacked out, I have to admit. And it was, I didn't believe him, honestly. I thought, why would you lie to me? I don't understand this. Um, and then after that, they they got up and left. Uh, they all walked out, all the adults left. And I was just sitting there like, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do? Alone? Uh, completely alone. And I, you have to, you know, this wasn't, I don't think this was a normal thing. It was, everyone was in shock. And I don't know, like, again, I I blacked out. So I don't remember how much time passed, but I remember being alone. Um, 
I called my grandparents, my, my father's parents to tell them what happened. And what, what happened was almost a domino effect. My my grandfather walked out of his house and blacked out and passed out in the, in the yard. And it was just, I think that that domino effect, it didn't leave us over, even over that next few days, weeks, months. Um, we were all still very much impacted by what happened and, and the news of it. And I think that for years to come, um, it, it, it was devastating. Um, and like I said earlier, he, it, it changed who he had been because of how the world saw him. And at that time, you know, more than 20 years ago, we didn't understand mental health. We didn't understand uh, depression like we do now. And so we really, you know, people said he was bad and there was something wrong with him and it was shameful. And we, I felt as a child that, that people were looking at me waiting for something for me to do something like what he'd done. So it was, you know, living in the shadow of your father that you didn't want to live in the shadow of, but I loved him dearly. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it was not the best way to grow up. I have to admit. So, Susie, where did you live after that? What adults were in your world at that point? My grandparents, my father's parents, ended up adopting me. And so we went through a transitional period, um, and the military oversaw that um, adoption. Uh, so for the next year of my life, I had um, uh, Captain Campbell. Uh, I remember him distinctly. He kind of would come in and make sure everything was transitioning well, Um he was there throughout the entire process and then eventually, um, you know, stepped out. Um, so it was in another way, it was a bit difficult too, because I got to build a relationship with someone, um, who understood what I had been through. And then again, they disappeared. Um, so lots of transitions that were happening. Um, but my grandparents did adopt me and I moved to Arkansas, um, Benton, Arkansas. It's right outside of Little Rock. Um, and I live, I grew up there the rest of my, uh, formative years. During that time, Susie, was there any offer for counseling or support Mm -hmm. outside your family? Probably not, but, um, you know, (laughs) there were a few mentions of it, but we just, we we didn't accept it. I think had I understood what it was, I would have relished that opportunity. And I, I truly believe that um, it would have helped me to cope with my grief a lot better. Um, but at, at that time, it just wasn't looked at in the best of light. And we felt as a family that we could just handle it. So that's what we did. You know, Susie, it it, it hits me that a lot of this has... I believe we have evolved a bit since that time, but it still brings up the fact that we don't, the system does not really have a protocol that is well-defined for family members, especially children. And again, it has improved certainly, and there are groups making great strides in taking care of children and putting forth the counseling and giving the importance of education and awareness and all of that. But when you were going through all of this, what I sense as I listen to you, and we've talked before the show, is this lack of real continuity in terms of family leadership and support. Because a lot of this, you were on your own. Most definitely. Um, And I think, too, that 
because of the nature of, of how he died, um, that that was, we were all in a, in a sense on our own in it, um, trying to, to grasp what happened and then grieve as well. So, but I, I completely agree with that statement. We are going to go to a break in just a short while. And I think the important thing that we're going to talk about next is how do we break the stigma of having this happen in a family and how do we begin to change how we support those who go through this? You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be back with Susie Reese. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. you have a lot of spizzerinktum or the will to win, and you have a strong desire to be a part of your favorite sports team, the National Hockey League might be for you. Did you know that if both goalies on an NHL hockey team are injured, anyone at the game is eligible to step in and play the part? Teams have resorted to using their coaches, team owners, and even their web designers to fill in for injured goalies. It's as simple as slipping into your breezers or hockey pants. The original hockey puck was made out of frozen cow dung. The fastest puck shot on record was clocked at 114 miles per hour. And I'd like to take this opportunity to send out a special thanks to the men and women of our armed forces serving our country around the world. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We're talking with Susie Reese about community suicide prevention. And in the first segment, we listened to her extremely poignant story of her own experience. And Susie, can you speak to 
the larger problem, uh, the statistics about, uh, you know, how many are involved, how much of this is um, depression gone awry into a situational problem, um, the permanent solution to a, a temporary problem. Talk a little bit about suicide prevention in general and why it's so important. You know, I, I think when I started doing this, I had I still had that sense of when I was younger and this wasn't an issue that was was prevalent. This wasn't something that um, anyone really understood or had dealt with. And so I had this fear when I would speak about it that someone was going to say, well, that doesn't affect anyone. And as I began to do it and get a little more confident in, in what I had to say, I realized that every single time I step into a room there are numerous people that have been affected by this in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you look at the numbers and I think last year we had more than 44,000 people who died by suicide and it, it's staggering. And yet this, these numbers are still rising. Uh, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death, according to the centers for disease control. And of the top 10 leading causes of death, it is the only leading cause of death that is still on the rise. Everything else is declining except for suicide. Mm. Wow. So you know, it, it's definitely prevalent. It definitely affects everyone. And it, it's one of those things that it's not just you've lost someone. It's in the manner in which you've lost someone. And there is a there is a grief that follows that you cannot escape. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are in this issue. You feel guilty. Um, you're questioning. I mean, it's it's. It's a very poignant way to lose someone. It's a very challenging way to lose someone and, and what to do with all of it. In terms of the follow-up, do you feel as though, I mean, your situation, you were alone a lot. You had huge transitions that followed afterward. The fact that you are as resilient as you are is a credit to your own strength. You're obviously great coping mechanisms, etc. But we, if this is the 10th leading cause of death and it is still rising, what are we missing? I think we're missing a lot. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I find when we do our, our education, our suicide prevention, it's those human connections. And we've gotten to find, we found ourselves in a society where it's very I, I, and, and, and this is opinion, of course, but I think that we, we long for those interactions and we're raising a generation that, that they don't understand. They don't know how to make those connections. Um, they're so attached to social media and, and doing things, but that does not replace that human interaction and it can't. Mm -mm. So yeah. we, I'm sorry, Justin, go ahead. I was just going to piggyback on that, Susie. I think you're right. It seems like more and more in our country that you said I, I, and I feel that's true. I feel like we don't, we don't really have so much as a community investment or, you know, right. it's just a whole idea of it takes a village and, and how can we pull together as a, as a local community, as a state, as a country. And, and so, yeah, it, you know, we talk about American exceptionalism, which certainly is true, but when it comes to taking care of people around us, I think that is a serious issue that we face. Do you feel, though, I'll ask this to both of you, do you feel that this is 
the arm's length of social media? Is it the fact that we are still not talking about it? Uh, because we have a very high teen suicide rate in my community. It's one of the highest in the nation. And it is often contagious, if you will, because these are very young people, 14, 16, and, and there are now suicides that run even uh, younger than that, as you know from the news. Do you feel as though we are simply not addressing the root causes, which can be depression, anxiety, uh, the lack of connection, the social pressures for young minds that don't know what to do with it. And in the case of adults, are we looking at helplessness, hopelessness, those kinds of things? And, and are we aware of what that means when people act that way and how we can respond? Susie, I'll take you first. Um, I, I think that it's all of the above, honestly. I think that for one in our use that we can teach people anything mm -hmm. what are we teaching them though are we teaching them resilience are we teaching them the benefits of coping skills are we teaching them what those look like and how to problem solve life situations huh. um, and right. I don't think we are I think we focus on the the education of mathematics and English and all of those things and yet the human side of our our being is not necessarily being educated um, and then with our older generations as well. Um, and, and two, my dad grew up in that, in that world where men suck it up. You yep. don't cry. You, you know, this is how it is. You're a tough man. He was the epitome of the man's man. Mm -hmm. And you just, you didn't see him cry because that's not what men do. But when you get into those despairs, you don't feel like you can speak with anyone about it because that mentality is there. And then, we also, we aren't educated on what depression and anxiety is. And there are still people to this day that don't believe they exist. I saw um, a celebrity just the other day who said depression isn't real. It's not a real thing. Right. Um, and that is counterproductive because it is. I mean, anyone, it's, it's very similar to grief. If you've ever lost someone to death, you have grieved them. And depression is, is very much in line with that feeling. So you can't say that depression isn't real um, because most people aren't happy when they lose someone. So I think that just educating on that and getting to where we talk about feelings, um, and unfortunately, they're, they're there. <laughs> so we have to admit it. We have to start understanding that they can be good and they can be bad. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That just it simply is. You know, I, I love that you brought up grief again, and, and we were going to touch on it anyway, but I think it's very important to mention grieving. Grieving comes with the loss of a person. That's a giant grief. But there are small griefs in life. When you lose a job, uh, you, you have an illness that is terminal. There are other grief moments, but I don't think we grieve very well in this country, nor do I think that there's a lot of help in understanding that grief and depression uh, or the lead-ups to it, anxiety and withdrawal and isolation, all of those things are signs and signals that things are not well. And we do have lots of resources in the community, but unfortunately they often require the person who's in the problem to go seek them as opposed to out, which is, of course, what we're doing today. We're reaching out and talking about this issue. 
will pick it up and talk about it as well. But talk a little bit about grief and the lack of, right now, if you, I'm going to sideways a little bit, right now, if you find someone who disagrees with you, there's anger. And anger is a very different emotion, one of the parts of coping with grief, but certainly not the only one. We're shutting down conversations between people as opposed to opening them up societally. I agree completely. And I think that we, we want to be heard. And when you come at someone from only your perspective and not wanting to actually listen to them, we immediately shut, shut, shut you out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the conversations that are happening in our society right now are because we're coming at you instead of with, um, and trying to meet that middle ground. You and I are not going to agree on every single aspect of life. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. And I'm not going to agree with every, any, probably any person on every single aspect of life. Um, it just isn't who we are and we're all very unique and my life situations, my experiences built how I feel and my opinions and there's nothing wrong with that. So I think that, that, that anger, it's an easily accessible emotion and it's surface level. And then when you dig down, there's something else oftentimes that's lying behind it. Um, and most definitely, especially when you're talking about grief, um, but, I mean, that's a, that was a very good question. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I've always heard, and tell me your opinion on this, that there are really only two emotions that drive us, fear and love. I think so. I think that, that I think you can stem almost anything from those two things. And when you come from fear, I, I, I watched someone the other day who was talking about um, when, when people walk into a room or walk out of a room, There's an energy that either comes or goes with them. And sometimes you want people to leave the room because of that negative energy that surrounds them. And it could be that fear. And in my situation, um, I, I, I think I lived in fear for a long time, fear of understanding what happened to my father and fear of, of it happening to myself and the person I am today versus that person even five years ago we may look the same, but we're very different. Um, I, I, I struggle with depression, but because I try not to come from that side of fear now, it, it's a, I've been able to create and accomplish so many more things um, than I ever would have if I'd stayed in that fear. Susie, what you're sharing is so critical. You're your, one of your coping mechanisms appears to be helping others, which is often an excellent way to help others avoid what you had to go through. We are coming up on another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how Susie began working in suicide prevention and the hurdles that face the military community and the emphasis on supporting the family, spouses, partners, and children. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We're visiting with Susie Reese, talking today about the very important topic, community suicide prevention. Stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
Sacred Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine, and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. need larger parking spaces? The owners of the Togla Rest Stop in southeastern China think so. They have created a number of parking spaces that are 50% larger, designated for female drivers, with the international symbol for women and outlined in pink. When asked by a Chinese newspaper why they felt the need to enlarge the parking spaces for women drivers, a lot manager explained that they observed female drivers having a difficult time parking, which slowed down the order of traffic. I admit I'm a bit of a baby bummel or bungler when it comes to parking, but is this really necessary? Actually, I was complimented on my parking the other day. Someone left a note that said, parking, fine. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network. On the break, we have some of the most interesting discussions, and, and we this was no exception. Justin, you have a question for Susie and a comment from the last segment. Yeah, I sure do. Thank you. I, I would like to start off with a comment, Susie. When you were talking about uh, education and what we spend our time learning in school, science, math, English, etc., you're right. I feel like I feel that we don't spend time. I look back at the courses I took in high school and college, and and, and after that, but we don't spend time on uh, communication or debate or. Uh, personal development or life skills or, or how to deal with grief or anything about mental health. Maybe things have changed in the classroom, but my wife's a teacher. We talk about this issue. I don't think a whole lot has changed on that level. What are your thoughts about that, and what do you, what do you think we could do better? I think that um, I think we need to start. I think that we need to incorporate what's called social-emotional learning into our schools um, at an early age, pre-K, kindergarten, um, I think that those skills are fundamental in being a better person and understanding our neighbors who we have to deal with on a daily basis. 
um, it's been said that in Japan, they spend the first few years of children's education just learning social skills so that they understand respect and they understand um, when it's appropriate to speak and how to speak so that we can be considerate of others. And, and you see that in adults here where we don't always know how to be considerate of others. So um, I think it's very important. And I think that times are, are crucial now for us to begin incorporating those things into education for future generations. Yeah, especially as um, kids are growing up much faster today than just a decade or two ago. And so I think you're right. Like if you start early, like in Japan, which is a very respectful uh, nation, the way they treat each other and, and pull mm -hmm. together constantly uh, in everyday life. But I think about trigonometry. Do I really need that? I don't know. Probably not. But, <laughs> you know, but I sure That's where I put calculus. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. so I would have benefit a lot from a course on even this basic um, psychology, for instance, or, you know, or what makes us tick. So thank you for your input. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk, you know, you, you share with us some very intimate details. So thank you. You could have gone in a number of different directions. Obviously you've dedicated uh, what's going on with you to uh, suicide prevention. How did you begin working in suicide prevention? Um, accidentally. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I, a few years ago, I started wanting to volunteer and give back. And I looked at a few different wonderful organizations. I actually um, looked at child abuse and neglect and, you know, things that were somewhat personal. And I just happened into a group, a small community group that had their first meeting on suicide prevention. And it was right after Robin Williams had passed. Mm -hmm. And I remember I, I met this group and everyone knew everyone except for me. Everyone was around the same age except for me. And they'd all been doing community work for much longer than I had. And I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong place, <laughs> you know. Um, but I said something and, and this one woman still repeats it to this day about how if Robin Williams, who was so beloved, who was a humorous person that people were drawn to, who had fame and fortune and all of these things, could yeah. get so depressed to take his own life, what happens to the person who's depressed and doesn't have any of those things? And she said it stood out to her. And so she began introducing me as the chair of that group. And so for months, I just kind of, I said no, and then eventually... Everyone just <laughs> recognized me as that person. And I think it was divine grace, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think that it was meant to be because I've, I've never been happier in what I've been doing in life. And it's taught me a lot about myself. And more than that, I've been able to create deep, meaningful connections with others in the most tragic of life cir circumstances. And I, I am extraordinarily grateful for every day and every opportunity I have to build those relationships. And I don't think I would have them if it weren't for this. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Of course, Robin Williams, that, that kind of rocking nation, probably international community, certainly America, a lot, a lot of attention. Like you said, how could this happen? Quote unquote to someone like Robin Williams, but whoever that celebrity is who you mentioned, who said depression is not a real thing. So look around the, the celebrity community 
And Robin Williams certainly isn't the only person in, you know, in that community who has taken his or her own life. So, as you said, if it can happen on this level where they have resources and friends and, and, and things like that, what's going on in everyday life? Right. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I'd like to uh, talk to you about, in a, specifically focusing on the military, and what's, based on your experience, what's the largest hurdle you feel the military community faces about suicide and suicide prevention? Oh, wow. Um, that's a very good question. I, th oh. I think that there are many hurdles, but I think that right now, one of the largest ones is the um, negative connotations that are coming with it. Um, you know, you put an individual through so many rigorous um, tests almost, and then you, you train them and you give them these skills, and then you have things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I mean, there's so many things, uh, moral injury. And, you know, as human beings, we are connected with one another. And when you're uh, in, a, in a role like that, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to disconnect from emotions um, and then come back into the civilian society and not be able to use those skills and not have understanding of what you've been put through, I think is very difficult. So um, I've been lucky to reconnect with um, our military here in Arkansas, and I see so many different trainings, resilience trainings, and there's ACE and there's all of these different programs that are geared toward suicide prevention and coping skills because we have an understanding that we have to do it. Um, and it may not always be because it's something that we want to do, but it's something that we have to do. So I think that starting earlier, even outside of that military line in school would be easier for those who are in the military as well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fantastic point because significantly, um, or interestingly, I guess, uh, a number of the folks who commit suicide in the military did not deploy to a war zone. And, you know, so a lot of them are, are a little bit older in life. They're not a 22 and 23 year old. Often they're in their late 40s, 50s, even 60s. So, you know, conventional wisdom perhaps is that suicide isn't necessarily related to a deployment or post-traumatic stress, but from the military at least, there could be any number of reasons. So. If we take it back a step further, like you said, and even start pre-military, boy, when people come into the military, we would all benefit because they'd be so, so much more resilient on the front end with whatever challenges they may see from things they face in the military. You know, I, I think in many ways when we're looking at the youth and teen suicide and military teens have even greater burden, you know, their affects their parents' careers. Um, they are constantly relocated, they have to replant, um, learn to thrive, make new friends, uh, switch schools, all of that kind of thing. And that adds layers of complexity to things. But if we began earlier, as you talked about, in terms of understanding how to engage properly, how to talk, how to debate, how to understand other points of view, the respect aspect, I love that you talked about the Japanese uh, education system, because, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, respect civility is rare these days at, from young ages all the way up and if it's modeled in the adults for the children 
it's not always a positive thing. So as we look at the bigger aspect about suicide and communication and the underlying depression, anxiety, etc., what do you find? You are now working at CHI St. Vincent's. You have a very unique program. We're coming up on another break, but I'd like you to get in before the break. What are some of the unique aspects of that program that make it successful? Right. Um, well, I, I guess me spearheading the program has been one of the unique aspects. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, just having so many different life experiences and being that child who was moved around. And, um, you know, for a long time after I finally settled into a home, I had to rearrange furniture every few months. And I think it was because I was so used to moving, um, and just things like that to make me feel at ease. I had to move things constantly, um, that people may not have understood, you know? Um, but I think that he, what, what's been wonderful here is we had the ability to really start in the community before CHI even picked up on what we were doing. And then CHI saw something that was effective, that was being effective and put their full weight behind it. Um, so we have many different programs and everything is very unique to each population that we're trying to reach. So I'm not taking a, a youth program and, and addressing military with it because it's not right. It's not the right fit. Um, and we really understand that it's important to speak each group's language because we all have different language and we all have different experiences and, and ways of looking at things. And so it's almost like engaging that debate class where we're trying to look at it from your side and how do you um, need us to address this and how can we work on that together? Well said, and we are coming up on another break, but we will be back to learn more about the program at CHI St. Vincent's, take a look at teens, and the difference between awareness and education and the importance of both. And that is a, a very big topic to, to cover in our last segment, but we're going to take a stab at it, and we will take another look at community suicide prevention because we don't live in a bubble. We are not living in a vacuum. There are people around us who can help and we need to know how to engage, how to, how to communicate with one another beyond social media. And that's a, a very big goal. So we will try and cover all of that in our last segment. We'll go on break. You're listening to Military Network Radio and we'll be right back. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on Toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature. 
and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total sieve head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? Nucleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Susie, before the break, we were talking about how we were going to, uh, we, first of all, can you explain what CHI is? Uh, CHI St. Vincent's, so we, our li- listeners know what that is? Yes. So CHI stands for Catholic Health Initiatives. We are a chain of Catholic health hospitals all across the country. And then St. Vincent's is a chain of hospitals that's under that organization within the state of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So I'm housed at the CHI St. Vincent within Hot Springs, Arkansas, but I'm the only violence prevention specialist for CHI St. Vincent within the state of Arkansas. Thank you for sharing that because I, I didn't want to give one more acronym to the military community that they may not know. So <laughs> you know how that goes. So I have this feeling and I'd love you to take it apart if it's incorrect or take it on uh, in detail if it is correct. There's a lot of work in the military community about awareness. We need to make people aware of suicide prevention. I personally believe that education plays a very large role beyond awareness. We know there's a problem. I think most people have heard the 20 a day, 22 a day, pick your number. But what about educating families, about listening, knowing signs to get help? And how do we reduce the stigma in asking for help? Or reaching out to offer help. Right. Well, I I agree with you. I think that awareness is really the first phase. Um, And and you see a lot of awareness organizations. And when you see fundraisers, a lot of times those are to build awareness that there is an issue. Um, Because in order to really educate someone, you have to first know that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it really is that first step. And then education takes it a bit more in depth. Because just because you know there's a problem doesn't mean you understand the problem. It doesn't mean you know how to address the problem. And it doesn't mean that you really believe in the problem. You may know that there is a problem, but but why is it a problem? Um, and so I think education is, is more. It gives you um, a little bit more information when you're able to receive it. And it also gives you skills in order to better address that issue within your you know, personal passion or your demographic or your profession. 
that's a huge point. Why? Why is it a problem? So as you go about at CHI uh, St. Vincent's, and your role is obviously very large in the state of Arkansas, what do you do as the first step in educating families? Well, we have many different programs and we use some of the top tier suicide prevention programs in our education, what you might call arsenal. Um, but we have um, what's called the Safe Talk, um, which is really a general introduction into suicide prevention. And then we have the Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training as well. And I know that the military util utilizes both of these programs within their um their suicide prevention programming as well. But we have a lot more than just the, um, the, the trainings that we offer. A lot of times the, you, you need to have that experience um, and you need to have people that have experienced a loss or who have experienced the de depths of depression who are speaking knowledgeably about these issues because you can be um, a researcher and not truly know how it feels. And to have someone tell you that they understand when they don't, mm -hmm. there's nothing more devaluating, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important that we incorporate many aspects into our programming and also creating new things, making sure that we're addressing areas that aren't being addressed and not missing any people. Um, so I think that that's part of why we've been successful is, is we invite people to the table and we try to create things that aren't there. Um, we do media campaigns to build awareness. Um, and then we take it a bit further and go in and sit down and have those personal discussions about why we feel the way that we do about this. I mean, there's a long history to this issue. Um, and, and we've been trained over centuries that suicide mm -hmm. is not something to talk about. And we have to untrain ourselves and we have to make it okay to, to talk about it, but we have to look at that history as well. Can you talk a, a bit about the fact that there is still a very large part of our population that believes if you talk about suicide with someone or listen to someone talking about harming, harming themselves, that it will cause them to take their lives? Dispel Absolutely. that notion. Hey, that's one of the top myths that I come across on a regular basis, that and um, that there more suicides happen during the holidays, which is also not true. Correct. Um, but back to yours, um, you know, I think that that was part of that training that we've received over centuries that if you talk about it, it's going to happen. Unfortunately, people are not very um, easy to manipulate into doing things that you want. Otherwise, I would be a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but you, you know, it's, it's that mentality that if you do talk about it, that it's, you're going to plant the idea in someone's head. We can't plant ideas in people's heads. If the idea is already there, we can open that wound. We can open that discussion, however. And I found that just discussing it, if someone's struggling with it, they feel more comfortable telling you if you start that conversation, mm -hmm. if you let them know that it's okay to come to you. And that's really what suicide prevention is. It's increasing a help-seeking environment. So if you're struggling with suicidality, you're not doing it by yourself you have someone that you feel you can connect with. Because again, you know, if we're not talking about it, we're telling people it's not an okay thing. It's not okay that you feel this way and you don't need to tell anyone you feel this way. And then what happens? They end up taking their lives. Well, you know, it's interesting. We know the signs of both heart attack, stroke, how to do CPR, etc. What are some of the things that a family member can look for 
to know that it might be time to open that discussion? This is one of those questions I get a lot. And I think um, I was speaking with someone the other day and she said, I think people want like a, an A, B, and C answer. And if like, only. Right. Exactly. Um, I wish I could give you that and I can't, but it's, to me, it's that gut feeling. Mm -hmm. It's something is wrong. I don't necessarily know what's wrong, but they're different. They're not, they're not who they were. Maybe they're more, um, obsessive. Maybe they're not taking care of themselves and they're not dressing the way that they were, but there's something that's changed that has you concerned. And that concern is something that we want you to speak about, ask them, you know, are you okay? Um, are you struggling with depression? Are you thinking about suicide? Um, and it's okay if they say yes, because we'd rather them get that conversation started and out in the open than struggle alone. Yeah, I, this, this is great. This is a great point. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with expecting your peer group who knows you best often to stand up and take the lead. I mean, we celebrate that in the military, that we take care of those around us, our fire team, our squad, our platoon. And uh, I'll just share a quick story. I was at a, uh, an event a couple years ago for veterans, and a woman stood up and told a very sad story. She was there to talk about service dogs, but she talked about an event where she had spoken at a Ivy League school about veteran suicide. And a man in the audience stood up and said, you know, my son came home from Iraq and he was different. And I knew he was different. And we called um, some, some crisis hotlines and there was always an angel on the other end of the line that really helped. I felt we made a strong connection that we were on the right path. And then one evening he would sat down on the couch and he looked over and his son was in the doorway looking at him and his son just um, started crying and had a breakdown. And he came over and, and sat next to his dad and said, Dad, can you hold me like you used to? And his father did and he held him for 43 minutes. And he felt good about that. But the next day he held him again when he cut him down from the rafter where he hung himself. After that night, and obviously everyone in the room was overwhelmed with emotion, as I am right now, thinking about it from two years ago. And I just think, you know, where were his friends? Where were those soldiers or Marines, where, whatever unit he was from, around him, who must have seen something and maybe felt uncomfortable? But I'd rather feel uncomfortable and start a conversation than to have to retell something like this. So, if you have any advice, further advice on peer-to-peer counseling, or maybe it's just enough, maybe we've said enough, but it is critical for us to be looking at our friends actively and see how we can help. Right, and, and there are programs available. You know, if you don't know how to start this, educate yourself. You know, it's, it's so, it's easily accessible. We have the internet. We can learn these skills, right. and we can do it now so that we don't have to do that because, there's yeah. that, that regret. It never goes away. It just doesn't. Um, I, I had regret for my father at the age of 10 and I felt like I should have done something at the age of 10, you know? So that's, that's a part of it. Yeah. Perhaps not realistically a 10 year old could, could have done anything, but I certainly understand why you felt that way and maybe still do. I mean, that's not going to go away because uh, right. you were right there. We only have a couple of minutes. I wonder, Linda, is it okay if we talk about anything else that's going on in Arkansas or where would you like to finish up here? Can we just please give out the Facebook group that Susie is 
in oh, yeah. charge of or, or works with because I think we want people to really know where to go to ask the questions. And Susie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's facebook.com forward slash suicide prevention allies, A-L-L-I-E-S. Is that correct? Perfect. Yes. Excellent. So facebook.com forward slash suicide prevention allies. Susie, go ahead and finish us out with anything else we may have missed because this is a topic that could take five hours. But, you know, <laughs> and we'll have you back again, by the way. But talk about anything else we may have just missed in terms of resources or, or, or where to go and what to listen for, etc. Right. Well, I think that I always like to give these resources. So if you or you or someone you know is struggling with uh, thoughts of depression, there's a phone line that you can call, and that's 1-800-273-8255. There's also a text line. It's called the Crisis Text, and that is 741-741. And it's, it's better to talk to someone than no one mm-hmm. um, because those thoughts of depression, they're, they're telling you things that aren't necessarily true. And you really need to have someone to, to listen to you. And so those people that are on those two resources are volunteers and they're trained and they're 24 seven. Um, but more than that, you know, find out ways to educate yourself on these, find out how to get into these programs. These types of programs that we offer are available all over the country. Um, and if they want, they can message us on Facebook and we can try and help connect them to websites where they can find trainers and find trainings. Um, but more than even that, you know, reach out to us and let us know if you want to partner. Um, we love creating media campaigns to build awareness and we love input and getting, um, feedback about what we're doing so that we can improve. And I think that that's my goal is to constantly improve so that we can really try and be more effective in how we reach people. Susie, fantastic job. Thank you for joining us this morning. We will be back next week with another show. Thank you for now. Thank you. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash military network radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 